Welcome to the Climate Hour. I'm your host, Bob Grove. Today, we're going to talk about ocean warming and the survival of the world's largest ecosystem. This is a big problem. Oceans cover 70% of our planet's surface. They absorb 90% of the heat from global warming and 30% of the carbon dioxide produced by burning fossil fuels. Oceans drive our planet's weather and oceans feed much of the world. NASA reports that oceans have absorbed 345 zettajoules of heat since 1955. Zeta, that's, that's a number followed by 21 zeros, a billion trillion units of heat removed from our atmosphere, keeping us cooler, yes, but accelerating the melting of Earth's major ice sheets, intensifying hurricanes, bleaching coral, and destabilizing the planet's largest ecosystem. NOAA reports that absorbing increased levels of carbon dioxide is making the oceans more acidic. Greater acidity kills species we rely on and promotes the growth of other species which are considered toxic, things like harmful algae blooms, which are often called red tides. The importance of oceans cannot be overstressed. As oceans go, so goes civilization. We're joined today on Zoom by Dr. Greg Asner, Director of Arizona State University's Center for Global Discovery and Conservation Science. Dr. Asner is an ecologist recognized for his applied research on ecosystems and climate change. He serves on ASU's Faculty of the School of Ocean Futures and in numerous programs with NASA, the US State Department, the United Nations. He's a recipient of multiple scientific and sustainability awards and is a member of the US National Academy of Sciences. His research spans the areas of ecology, biodiversity, coral reefs, terrestrial carbon cycle, animal habitat interactions, and climate change. Dr. Greg Asner is the principal investigator for Asner Labs. Hi, Greg. It's great to be here, Bob. Thank you for having me. You know, these, these are really massive numbers we're talking about, and there's just so much to unpack. You know, Florida's reporting ocean temperatures over 101 degrees Fahrenheit. That's literally hot tub temperatures, and that has to be devastating the ecosystems. I mean, how is climate change impacting coral reefs? Uh, you've probably seen the news in the last month or six weeks uh, showing that waters in the Florida area did get over 100 degrees Fahrenheit. And, you know, every year the records are being broken. That one is a record that uh, I'm very in touch with the biologists that work in that region. And it's gotten so extreme in that part of the world that they're literally pulling corals out of the ocean and putting them back into facilities on land to try to keep some sort of genetic base. So, you know, extreme measures at this point and climate change. Yeah. So climate change has had multiple uh, effects on our coral reefs worldwide. The number one uh, effect is the advent of the marine heat wave. Marine heat waves are a term that we use to describe periodic heating of different parts of the ocean, all related and connected back to the general problem of climate change. These heat waves pass through a coral reef, raise the temperatures from uh, for anywhere from six to 15 weeks. And during that heated period, that, that, that period of elevated temperature, the corals cook on those reefs. And that leads to a process that is now known as coral bleaching the whitening of these corals. And we can talk about what's going on when that happens, but that's one of the effects. We have issues of ocean acidification, the carbon dioxide that we're pumping into the atmosphere 
the portion that dissolves into the ocean surface uh, waters is lowering the pH ever so uh, gradually. And so by the end of this century, we could have that as another major impact on our coral reefs. Uh, the heat is here now, the pH is lowering over a longer term. And then there are a plethora of regional uh, stresses on these reefs as well that we could talk about. Many of our listeners you know, live thousands of miles from the ocean and probably wondering how this affects them. So does it mean, how important are we reefs to humanity? Um, how are reefs connected to the land in general? Yeah, recent studies have shown that uh, there isn't much of the planet's surface that isn't somehow connected to reef nowadays. And the, the, the number one way is through commerce and coastal stability. Um, a lot of our uh, human population lives al along coastlines, but a, uh, even more of our uh, traffic uh, whether it's commerce, whether it's uh, uh, people coming and going into and out of different regions, those coastlines are being destabilized by the loss of coral reefs. And the way that that has been happening is that coral reefs provide an enormous service to coastlines in protecting those coastlines from average storms and average swell, ocean swell conditions, and then the increasing frequency of more extreme weather events hurricanes, typhoons, and so forth. So these coral reefs are known now, so well known now to be protective that there are insurance companies that are insuring these coastlines. And so, you know, it isn't a, it isn't a thing for biologists or scuba divers or, or fishing, fisher people alone. It is now an issue that affects a wide range of the economic spectrum uh, across our planet. And so that was just one example. And so what, you know, I tell people in Arizona, where my home university is based, that, you know, what goes on on our coral reefs and on our coastlines uh, around the United States and all over the world affects them. Commerce affects the, the exchange of goods and services. It affects um, climate feedbacks that might be connected back into Arizona. So, you know, the, the list goes on and on. There isn't, it isn't like the earth is partitioned and not communicating across these boundaries. I, th I think most of our listeners are familiar with the concept of the barrier reef. And sure. you know, you're describing that as something literal. It actually is a barrier protecting us from those storm surges and such. Yep. Yeah. I, I was, I was really taken aback when um, some years ago, uh, insurance companies started working with hotel industries and regional governments to ensure coral reefs against increasing frequency of storms. And that started in the Caribbean and more recently where I'm based in Hawaii, we now have an insurance policy that provides some uh, payout if we have a storm pass through to try to get these reefs back in shape so that we can get our protections around the coastline back up and running, literally. Absolutely. Um, we're relying more and more on, on ocean for food systems. And, you know, um, I think I think a lot a lot of people rely on them for food systems now, but I think that's growing with climate change and you know the the impacts of our current food crop systems. How do the coral reefs impact our food systems? So coral reefs support more than a billion people worldwide, just in terms of the fisheries that they provide directly. So people fishing on coral reefs, people uh, uh, utilizing coral reefs for uh, their sustenance—that's about a billion people a year. The UN tells us. Um, Probably the bigger uh, connection is that about 25% of all ocean species 
many species that live their life out in the deep blue or in the blue waters, you know, far offshore from coral reefs, they spend part of their critical life cycle on a coral reef. So about 25% of all ocean life as we know it, spend some portion of their life on or near a coral reef. And so you, you really can't look at the fishery offshore. Here in Hawaii, our tuna fishery, our ahi fishery is connected to our reefs because at uh, juvenile stages, ahi are more inshore. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of connectivity between coral reefs and the deeper blue ocean that we're just starting to fully appreciate. And so that affects the food supply uh, even if you're not eating the fish that exists on a reef, but are further offshore, there, there is a strong connection there. And those are just a few examples. Mm -hmm. I'm also reading about the impacts of, of ocean warming, ocean acidification, but mostly the warming on our weather systems. I mean, I understand that it's the ocean currents that drive much of our weather system, dispersing heat from the tropics to the polar regions and driving the jet streams and such. Um, what, what's coral reefs role in that? I mean, ocean in general, but do the, do the reefs somehow help determine those currents and stuff that control our weather? I, I'm not a climate, ocean climate scientist. I'm mostly a okay, sure. coral reef biologist, but, um, and we tend to think of the coral reefs as sort of the recipients of climate change, but there could be feedbacks that we're still not appreciating as these, as these uh, currents in the ocean uh, heat exchange changes and, and, and changes over time. One thing that I will say about that is for, for this year we're having an El Nino and we're probably going to be in El Nino next year as well as what Noah tells us. And that process has, uh, it's although it's been present and has been a cycle that is uh, natural, the effects of that cycle are getting more extreme. And there have been changes in currents associated with the, the onset of El Nino and changes in the way heat passes through the ocean that is really exposing our coral reefs to intense heat. As of today, more than half of the world's coral reefs are currently right now in a state of uh, marine heat wave. Those are heat waves that can generate coral bleaching and mass coral mortality. So we've, we're reaching these um, levels today that certainly haven't existed in my 35 years uh, as a scientist and, and are not um, in the climate record. So, you know, we're really pushing these systems. The feedbacks uh, that you asked me about are probably hard to keep up with scientifically. The system is changing so quickly that we don't know if coral reefs are feeding back to change our ocean currents, but certainly these currents and heat events are changing our reefs. So we know part of the story right now, and we needed to understand that the, the longer term feedbacks over time. And you use the word feedback several times. How, what role yeah. does um, coral reef pay, play as a feedback? I mean, is that a good indicator of the health of the ocean? Yeah, I, you know, we find that reefs, uh, there's strong connectivity between reefs. Here in Hawaii, we know that reefs are communicating across the archipelago. And that's pretty amazing. We use um, nearshore current buoys and all sorts of uh, satellite techniques combined with field data to understand how these reefs communicating over long distances. And they do that through, you know, ocean currents, the transfer of heat, the transfer of um, large amounts of biological material, plankton and so forth. And uh, we're, we've gotten 
as a science community, we've gotten far more uh, capable in understanding these, these uh, long range connectivity issues. Uh, the same is true in the Caribbean. There's e enormous amounts of connectivity across and throughout the Caribbean. These are not isolated reefs that you know, live and die on their own. They're, they are they are affecting one another uh, across larger regions. You kind of touched on the, the say, coral reefs, you know, as of today, they're all kind of suffering from the heat and stuff. Are there other factors that are impacting coral reefs? Um, and I'm thinking specifically about pollutants and stuff entering the oceans. Yeah, I just, uh, we just put out a paper in the, in the scientific journal Nature about a month ago. And in that paper, the reason it got published that in such a high ranking journal is that it really made clear for potentially the first time the detailed role of land-based stress on our reefs combined with climate stress. And those land-based stresses are really two-part. The biggest one is pollution, no doubt. I can give you so many examples of what's going on worldwide, but also here in the United States and also here in Hawaii, where I'm based. So we used to only, just over the last decade, we mostly talked about climate change and its effects on coral reefs. And through that process of studying these reefs in the climate context, we started getting better and better at looking at what the local stresses, stressors are because we're working on these reefs. And so we realized, wow, there's a lot of pollution coming in to our reef systems. Uh, depending on where you are in the world, the, the pollution is driven by primarily two kind of major categories. One is human, direct human, effluent, which is a scientific and engineering type of term to mean the stuff that we put out through our septic tanks and through our wastewater and so forth from our homes and from our businesses and from our buildings. And so we've become experts in that area. Um, and then the second one is large scale industrial uh, uh, pollution. And um, just in the last year, I was called by, called up by um the BBC that asked me to use our satellite capabilities to look at an area along the coastline of Egypt that was getting a large amount of uh, petroleum oil pollution coming in from a, in the industry there. They wanted to know, is it touching coral reef? And we were able to determine that it is. In the United States, we have areas where agrochemicals from agriculture are really getting into our reef system. And we're able to measure that with increasing accuracy over time. All of those measurements are done in the field. So it's a lot of field work, a lot of boat time, a lot of ship time. But we're seeing that that's a second issue. The leakage of land-based agriculture onto our reefs is something that's really front and center here in Hawaii, for example. I'm working on my next book, which is a field guide to plastics. So I'm curious, what kind of plastic impacts are you seeing on the reefs? Well, I don't know about the whole planet's plastic. I read, I read what you read. It's very telling to live in the middle of the Pacific Ocean on the islands here in Hawaii. We're in the North Pacific, basically in the smack dab in the middle between the US and Japan. And um, we have an enormous amount of microplastic that comes to us here. We know a lot about its source uh, just from other people's work. But that microplastic, we didn't really understand how prevalent it was in our reef system until we published some papers in 2020 showing that if you were to scoop up the waters around our reef system on the Big Island here in Hawaii, there are areas where microplastic is eight times the concentration of the biological material. Eight times. 
So, and it's, it's micro, you know, it's small stuff. It's been broken down, but it gets everywhere. And then there are biologists. These are, this is not me, but there are biologists that are studying organism by organism. What are the effects of this stuff on, you know, certain species of fish, certain species of coral and so forth. And um, some of the news uh, seems to be that it's pretty detrimental that there's, it can um, impede reproduction and so forth. Some of the news is that it just gets entrained into the tissues of these animals. And we're not sure what the effects are, but it is everywhere, even here in the middle of the Pacific. And, you know, you look out at our crystal blue waters here in Hawaii and you don't really notice that. Um, it's microplastic. Yeah. yeah, it's microplastic. That's right. By the time it gets here, it's it's kind of a soup of plastic rather than the, the big floaters. Although we do get that too. We get some pretty big stuff wash up on shore here and there. I believe coral feeds on, on microparticles. I mean, that's how they live. And if we're seeing a situation where you have eight times as much plastic as you do nutrients, I would think that would have to be very detrimental. Right. It's certainly in the system. And then how detrimental it is, the, 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 the hardcore physiologists that I know are, are seeing effects on the reproductive capability of corals that the plastics do impede reproduction. And, you know, that's, that's not good because the system has to keep up with changing conditions. And if the corals can't reproduce, then obviously um, the system will continue to, to degrade. Absolutely. Um, I touched on um, um, ocean acidification in my intro. You know, the ocean absorbs carbon dioxide from the air, chemical process, increases hydrogen ions, ocean gets more acidic. And obviously greenhouse gas emissions, you know, fossil fuel burning, more CO2 in the air, more absorption. So we are seeing that pH shift. Uh, you mentioned that it's just starting and we're expecting it to get worse. That's leading to, I mean, I'm seeing a lot of stuff in the news, the, the red tides I mean, in um, Florida, what they're having those Carinia brevis algae blooms that are shutting down beaches, you know, killing the local habitat. I understand that even breathing the air around there can cause severe respiratory problems. So, you know, a lot of toxics there. I recently read an article coming out of California. They're reporting record deaths of sea lions and dolphins. I don't know if you've seen that, but you know they're relating that back to a neurotoxin produced by um, pseudonychia algae, and you know that's mammals dying and washing into shore. What yeah, about, what about the same. coral? I read the yeah. same. Go yeah. ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. I was, was going to say, but what about the coral? I mean, the these algae blooms, these toxins and stuff um, that affecting mammals, are they also going to impact the coral? Well, the ecotoxicologists that uh, I connect with and interact with, these are folks that study the effects of uh, algal blooms, but also the precursors to algal blooms and also the chemicals, if it, you know, some of the chemicals that, that might affect corals directly. And there's a wide range of human-made uh, chemicals that affect this entire process. It, the, 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 the menu of these chemicals is so long and so complex, and there can be interactions between chemicals that I don't think there's an answer yet. But we do know that study by study, there are an enormous number of results showing that corals are negatively affected by both the chemicals that affect, that can direct make direct contact with them as corals and also the chemicals that can drive harmful algal blooms. So it's a soup of a problem. And 
I, the science is barely keeping up with it. You know, you, you read about, um, and just to pivot slightly, you read about uh, sunscreens. That's a big one here in Hawaii, right? We ban certain sunscreens and we, and I was part of the process. We, we did the best we could um, to, because the ecotoxicologist showed us that some of these sunscreens were so toxic to corals. Um, there's one scientist that described it this way, a shot glass in a swimming pool would kill the, the of you know, X, it was called oxybenzone is the, is the name of the chemical, will kill the corals in Hawaii. A, a shot glass in a swimming pool, that kind of concentration. And, you know, you, you, corals are really sensitive. They evolved in the last 240 million years. They've been through rough times uh, in the geologic record, but they've never had this sort of cocktail of uh, chemicals uh, expo exposure in their in their evolutionary history. So we're really experimenting with these entire reef systems right now. Um, in my career, we've you know I, there's some discussion about this, but one can say we've lost about half of our coral reefs in my career, which is you know that's it's that's a ridiculous statement. It, to make, but it's true, unfortunately. And so, you know, we're putting all this stress on these reefs and we're, the science is not keeping up with the amount of stress, but also the science is not totally keeping up with what the solutions are. And we, we should talk about that today as well. Absolutely. Um, so just kind of wrap up this entire science around coral reef. Mm. Is there a summary statement you can make? I mean, why are coral reefs important to us? Coral reefs provide an enormous number of services. I, you know, foundationally, they provide a cultural meaning and a cultural identity to so many people around the world. Uh, I, I always like to start with that one because I think this is a people problem. It's a problem that affects the quality of life of not just people that live on a reef, but that associate themselves culturally and uh, and many other ways with coral reefs. So that's the foundation. Coral reefs provide enormous uh, contribution to our uh, food security. Uh, like I said earlier, they support not only the fish that live on coral reefs, but the life cycle of many other species that live out in the blue water that spend part of their life on coral reefs, especially their juvenile life. Um, and then third, coral reefs provide insurable nowadays, uh, protection of coastlines from storm surge, storm surge, sea level rise, the combination of those two and many other factors that we have only fully come to appreciate in the last couple of decades. Um, it's, that last one is so much appreciated that uh, governments, many governments are focused on that sort of coastline security now, including militaries, you, you name it. There's a lot of um, focus of, around that third item, but all three are critical, cultural, culture, food security, and coastline protection. Are we expecting all coastal regions to be protected by a reef? Well, the reef is reef can be rock reef. You can have many types of reefs. Coral reefs are a subset of all reefs of the world. Okay. Um, I, I can give you some numbers. I don't know that they'll mean much. Um, we have something like 380,000 square kilometers. And I'm, I'm sorry, I got to do kilometers because that's how we work in my that's field. Funny. But 
380,000 square kilometers of coral reef worldwide strewn around the planet. The biggest coral systems are Indonesia, Australia, Cuba, and, um, and then the, re and the rest of the world is sort of more evenly distributed with the rest of, of, of all of that coral reef. Along coastlines, we have more than half a million linear kilometers of coastline that have a, a coral reef directly up against it. So it's actually the number is 529,000 linear kilometers along, you know, coastlines. And so, you know, that's a lot of kilometers for, of, of protection just from the coral reefs of the world. Then there are many other types of reefs, you know, off California, those are not coral reefs. Those are still reefs for sure. They have enormous um, biological diversity. Uh, they, you might call them rock reef, but that's a misnomer because there's, um, amazing biodiversity living in and on those rocks and that are also affected by ocean warming very much so and ocean acidification and all these factors. Um, I happen to be a coral reef guy, so I talk about that subset quite a lot, but I appreciate all the other reef systems around the planet that protect our coastlines. You're listening to the Climate Hour. I'm your host, Bob Grove. We're speaking with Greg Asner about ocean warming and the survival of the world's largest ecosystem. So let's let's jump to the organizations, the groups, the projects you're working with. Can you start by telling us a little bit about Asner Labs? Oh yeah, um, that, this it's my lab. Uh, we are a large lab. A lot of university labs are very specialized. Uh, I guess our specialization is an ability to measure, map, and monitor ecosystems at large scales. And so, because of that statement. Our lab has a diverse group of, of uh, contributors because doing that, mapping, monitoring, and measuring uh, ecosystems at large scales requires a wide range of, of uh, talents. Uh, we have social scientists, we have natural scientists, we have engineers, we have computer scientists, we have people that work on satellites, aircraft, ships. So we're an unusually large lab because our task, our mission has such a large footprint. And that's the essence of Asner Lab. And um, it was born <laughs> when I was a brand new faculty member uh, long ago, 1998. Uh, I started at the Carnegie Institution for Science based at Stanford University. And I spent 20 years developing the lab there. And then about five years ago, I migrated the lab to Arizona State University for a, a particular set of reasons that I'm happy to discuss, but um, an opportunity came our way to apply ourselves in a different manner. So we did that. And um, we're 25 years into Asner Lab now, and uh, the team is something about uh, 40 some odd people, plus a huge tree of, of partners and contractors. So it's quite a big lab and uh, it takes up pretty much all of my time. It sounds like it. You're using um, what you're calling the Global Airborne Observatory. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. So in um, from 98 to about 2004, I was a major user of NASA uh, airborne assets. Very major. I was writing a lot of proposals, getting a lot of good funding through NASA to utilize their platforms for doing the kind of work we do today. About 2004, I realized that uh, I was taking up too much of NASA's bandwidth and uh, for the airborne program 
And also I wanted to do um, deeper conservation applications. And NASA does a wide range of, of uh, applications with, it, with, it, with its airborne program. I wanted to zoom in, focus the spotlight on conservation related issues. So I decided to create my own program. The GAO is a heavy lift aircraft. If you look at it, it's, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's an aircraft that can carry six crew. Uh, it's a, it's, it, when it was a passenger aircraft, it had about 20 passenger seats in the back. You can get some sort of sense of scale that way. We have gutted these planes and outfitted them in car with carbon fiber interiors, uh, supercomputing on board, uh, a, a, a uh, sensor bay in the back that points and looks out below the plane in a large pneumatic uh, platform that isolates some very, very sensitive instruments from the aircraft itself. The crew is comprised of engineers, pilots, and um, those who collect the data, technicians. And the plane is in service seven days a week, 365, it, we are booked out. And um, that has been part of the challenge, but also, and we have a solution to that coming that I can talk to you about. But the GAO, Global Airborne Observatory, has been in service now um, in one form or another since 2005, blazing the way the, and, 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 and not just doing the science and delivering the data to the partners and the governments that we've served, but generating an entire um, genre, an entire um, wave of new scientists along the way. Um, literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of scientists who we've trained through the program from, um, from technicians to uh, all the way up to PhDs to leaders of, at many universities now all came through the GAO program. You mentioned this is your fourth platform. You have four planes flying or you've just upgraded it four times? Upgraded four times, started with a tiny little aircraft uh, in 2005. Um, I always tell stories, you know, we had the landing gear not come down once, <laughs> all that kind of stuff, you know, Red Baron feeling stuff, you know, kind of wild uh, days of trying to get this to work. Now we have a super pro, <laughs> we've graduated four times up to a super pro team that's a mix of the uh, very finest pilots in in our industry and um, and engineers, flight engineers and uh, the folks that run the instruments in the back have extraordinary amounts of experience. So it's um, it's it's a platform and a program that's very stable and reliable. So it gets lots and lots of business and lots and lots of work, mostly in the areas of climate science, biodiversity science, and um, and more recently, water uh, water quality and pollution. So those are the kind of the major areas that we could discuss. So your your planes flying around instruments, uh, monitoring data, observing data. I've seen the word spectronomics applied mm. to it. Can you just explain that to us? Spectronomics is um, so. Uh, when I was a younger scientist, we were we were sort of trained to think of mapping plants. It started out with trees and different types of plants, but I was really interested in forests at the time. And we, you know, the focus was on mapping trees and understanding their carbon balance. What we found was that mapping these trees, the trees really had different, um, I'm gonna just use for fun, the word personalities. They had different personalities expressed in the, in the, remotes, in the uh, remote sensing data that we were collecting. 
the remote sensing data are, are worth describing. Um, when we fly over a tree canopy, the pixel like you have on a phone or something, you know, the pixel is not just the color red, green, and blue. It's not just that combination. It contains uh, hundreds and hundreds of spectral channels that cross a huge part of the electromagnetic magnetic spectrum from the UV to the visible part of the spectrum to the infrared and so forth. That, that signal that we get as we were flying over trees, this is about uh, 2005, 2006, when I first built this observatory, we're flying over and we, we see these uh, spectral signals over these different trees, they were all different. And we were trying to figure out what was the, the source of the differences. We fast forward a decade and we figured out that different trees, I say different personalities, but they have different chemistries, just enough difference evolutionarily that we started to be able to identify them by species from the air. That gave rise to the program called Spectronomics. It was funded by the MacArthur Foundation for many years and continues today on many different sources of, of support. And it is a program that uh, allows us to inventory these spectral signals, assign them to different species, and then go out with the aircraft and map those species. And many postdocs and grad students have done that work and, and continue that work uh, beyond my lab now, nowadays with, uh, with, with other instruments. So spectronomics was really the birth of the ability to do biodiversity mapping from the air. Uh, it was very focused on tropical forests and then temperate forests. And then um, we got into all sorts of other ecosystems. We did uh, Southern Africa, the savannas, and then we started doing coral reefs where my, where my heart really lies. And the, the reason it took so long to get spectronomics to start working on coral reefs is one simple answer, but really hard to, to get past. And that is the seawater above coral reefs really dampens the signal that I described. And so we had to improve the instruments and make them so sensitive that we can see down through the water and get those chemical signals spectral and chemical signals from the corals on the seafloor. So now spectronomics is uh, applicable to coral reefs, tropical forests, savannas, shrublands, grasslands, you name it. People are using it everywhere. That's pretty amazing. Um, I noticed on your website, you're also um, applying artificial intelligence now to your work. How does that work? Yeah. Um, I was, I'm kind of old school in that realm, but I became a student of AI-based uh, scientific techniques uh, uh, probably a decade ago. The young generation of grad students coming into my lab, um, they brought it to me and said, hey, hey, uh, this looks like a real promising area. And I, I kind of looked at it with a, a raised eyebrow and I said, mm -hmm, let's, let's see what it can do. And you know, it was pretty rough in the early days. It wasn't working. Um, trying to get computer vision to work, trying to get computers to be able to identify things in imagery, both spatially, like, you know, uh, a cat or a dog in a photo is one thing, but to identify species A versus species B of two trees standing next to each other, that's, that's much tougher. And, and over the years, it's gotten more and more uh, accurate. And, and the effect has been to reduce the amount of time that it takes to process data. Um, that's ultimately the effect. Nowadays, the AI is about as accurate as 
a human doing the work, but it can do it in the, in a week. And the human part was taking us a year in the beginning. So um, it's a, it's a, it's an accelerator in my mind. Uh, I don't think it's replaced any scientists, but it has allowed our scientists to focus on the hardest parts of problems and not just getting the maps done. Think of it that way. Yeah. So I'll just jump over to the university. You're working with the um, ASU Center for Global Discovery and Conservation Science. Mm -hmm. You're also with the faculty of the School of Ocean Futures. Tell us about those programs. Yeah, so uh, about five, more than five years ago, but I started five years ago, uh, ASU approached me and said, would you be interested in starting a new center with us? And I said, oh. That sounds interesting. I think I might be ready for something new. And uh, the Center for Global Discovery and Conservation Science is a very applied center that does something that I've always wanted our science to be doing, which is turning the role of science from serving just government and sort of big program objectives to serving communities and serving smaller, much smaller programs down to small NGOs and down to you know, communities that we live in and, and participate in and so forth. And so the center has faculty. I have uh, nine faculty who I've brought in. I'm, I'm continuing to build the faculty based uh, both in Arizona and Hawaii. Uh, so we have kind of a land team and a oceans team, but they're highly interactive and that are really working the science at the edge of community stewardship, helping communities uh, adapt, adjust, prepare uh, for the issues that have come our way just in my lifetime with climate change and biodiversity loss and so forth. So that's really the essence of the center. Um, the School of Ocean Futures is another enterprise that, that emerged since I've been at ASU. And it is the con kind of the congregation of all the ocean knowledge uh, in, under one school. And it's a neat program because I do not run it. I run the center, but the school is run by a colleague of mine. And the uh, school's focus is on training the next generation of um, coastal and, and ocean scientists, but in a different model, um, really focused on the delivery of approaches and knowledge that help shape the future of humanity's interactions with our oceans, rather than just studying the problem, really focusing on solutions. And so the School of Ocean Futures is, is focused on that. And that's why it has that, that really neat name, Ocean Futures. We are based, the School of Ocean Futures headquarters is in Arizona on the main campus of ASU in Tempe, but it has equal footprint in Hawaii and in Bermuda because a school needs ocean, uh, you know, connection. So um, the university acquired us here, our programs here in Hawaii in the process. And then we acquired the Bermuda Institute of Ocean Sciences, which is an entire centuries old and century old institute that uh, is in Bermuda. So the school is really neat. It's going to be, uh, have to deliver if they're still formulating the curriculum, it launches in 2024 and it will deliver um, undergraduate bachelor's and math undergraduate, sorry, undergraduate master's and PhD degrees uh, at all three locations. Very good. Um, that kind of brings us to your Koakoa initiative in Hawaii. You're uh, working to restore 120 miles of coral reef on the west side of Big Island. Um, is there anything special? I mean, why'd you pick that reef other than you're in Hawaii or is, is there something special about the Hawaiian reef that you wanted to go after? 
Akokoa is a word that um, in the Hawaiian language has dual meaning, by the way. It means for people to assemble and for corals to assemble on the seafloor. And in Hawaiian mythology, those two processes are, are the same. And so uh, we, I've learned that as a student of Hawaiian culture for the past 35 years. And, and so I wanted to honor that. And our, and our cultural uh, board is honoring that as the name. The 120 miles of West Hawaii Island, that's the big island, is the longest contiguous reef in the entire archipelago. If you look at all of our reefs, this is the long, long, big, big one. Um, it, it is uh, also a reef that is teetering between uh, the future of degraded conditions and the past of pristine conditions. So the reef is in a wide range of conditions still, and it has a lot of potential to improve it, to sustain it, and to give it a different future than some of our other reefs in the state of Hawaii that have already been deeply degraded. So um, that's why we picked it. We're working closely with the state of Hawaii, which has jurisdiction over these reefs and they're, they're, they're deep partners of ours. But probably the most important partnership is with our communities up and down the coast. And so I spend a lot of time uh, with communities, understanding what their hopes and desires are for the reef that they, the part of the reef that they um, interact with and really working uh, the science, the social science, and the governance around supporting what their what their desires are uh, going forward. The one uniform answer among all community, communities is that the coral reef system in West Hawaii, no matter what part they live on, is vital to their identity, their subsistence, and their spirituality and and their 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 very being. So. Um, it's a pretty neat program because it, it fully integrates science, government, education, and cultural values in a way that doesn't just pay uh, lip service to it, but really puts the money and the effort where, where we want to take this. So we just launched it. It's a 2023 launch and uh, the, the news is out. I was able to get uh, build up a $25 million uh, program for it to get started. And uh, we'll see how we go over the next five years. So you're building the um, water research and propagation facility over in Kona. What what does that physically look like? Yeah, one of the one of the features of, on the science side, I told you there were four parts of Akokoa, but on the science side, uh, we now know that reefs need uh, the best science we can apply to propagate corals to try to, to recover from certain events that occur on reefs nowadays. Um, we get a little bit um, complacent between marine heat waves. We have a heat wave, we have a lot of coral death, and then we don't have a heat wave for about three or four years, say. We, the facility on land is helping us to prepare for these periodic disturbances that pass through this, the ecosystem. The coral nursery that you're referring to is under construction now. Our engineering uh, company tells me that I laugh at this because everyone likes to be the biggest and best, but they did tell me it would be the largest coral nursery in the world. So I, I still laugh at that. I, I don't really care, but it's neat that um, out here in the middle of the Pacific, we're building a massive coral nursery that will help propagate corals to recover from these periodic disturbances that we're going to continue to have here. Your nursery, is that actually in the ocean or are these tanks on land? Ah, they are tanks on land. 
So we have a unique capability on the Big Island. We have a campus, not we don't, not, not the university, but there is a campus of uh, businesses that are piped with seawater. So the seawater comes in and provides uh, that uh, service to, to, you know, some of them are um, aquaculture businesses, some are um, research uh, programs, the monk seal, seal facility here that saves monk seals, they use the seawater. Well, we said, well, we're going to do a coral nursery that's going to help propagate corals with this seawater um, service. And so uh, they are 72 tanks, thousands and thousands of gallons of seawater passing through. And in these tanks, uh, corals will be used to propagate thermally tolerant, and there's a whole story there, we probably don't have time for today, thermally tolerant corals and their larvae, their, their, their offspring, to put them back out on the reef and try to um, recover from these periodic heat waves that we're having uh, and try to keep the reef um, stocked with coral going forward. That's really the, the, the fate of a lot of regions now. And, and I think we've just got to face it and say, yeah, we're going to try to get through some of this next, the, the decades ahead with these extraordinary measures like coral nurseries. I do want to talk, um, pursue that thermally tolerant a little more because oh. I was wondering, I mean, we're, we're replanting reef. I mean, we can put the coral heads back out there, but the next heat wave is going to kill them again. So I, I did have that question. Are we able to um, make reefs more adaptable? Well, the good news, we didn't know for a long time, and it's region specific. Um, corals are not the same everywhere. Corals in parts of the, the West Pacific behave differently to, to heat load than, than Pacific, than uh, Hawaii corals and, so, and Caribbean corals, corals and so forth. So I can refer to any of them you'd like. Here in Hawaii, we do see that the corals that are surviving the, the heat waves there are survivors. There's a lot of survivors. In some areas, 50% of all the corals survive. And even though they've been exposed to the same temperatures as the 50% that died off, those corals have genetically encoded natural uh, higher levels of thermal tolerance. It's not a lot of thermal tolerance, it's a few tenths of a degree, but it's enough, we think, here in Hawaii to breed those corals and give them a chance to inhabit this reef system and keep the reef system intact and growing you know, overall. Um, the science is pretty strong in what I said. There's still a list of unknowns that the, that the nursery will help us answer. Um, so it's kind of selection of the fittest. You're picking the coral heads that are most tolerant to what's happening yeah. and helping propagate yeah. those throughout the reef. Yeah, it's like it's it's breeding, right? There's no genetic modification. Don't let anyone think that. Uh, we're <laughs> yeah. just doing basic, plain old breeding. Um, but we're also careful not to overbreed. So we don't want to create some sort of zombie reef, right? As, mm -hmm. as one of my grad students calls it. We want to create a reef that's slightly increased thermal tolerance and just as diverse as, as it ever was. That's the goal. Yeah. And so your first coral heads in the tanks? No, the facility is just being finished in the next six to eight weeks. And then the seawater will be flowing. It's a very high tech system, multi-million dollar facility. And the first corals will come in uh, for breeding and for propagation. What's your breeding cycle? We There are two types of breeding and two types of, quote, outplanting. Um, the, the, the one type, which uses adult corals, you can put them out anytime. Uh, we'll probably 
get past the winter storms. So we have some pretty big swell comes in in the winter. That's what makes Hawaii so famous for surfing. We'll let that pass. And by March, we'll probably start putting out some of the adult corals. There's a second technique that I'm super excited about. It's um, one where you, where you bring the adult corals in and you, uh, instead of putting new adult corals out that you create from the, 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 the incoming corals, you put their larvae out. So you, you allow them to do what's called spawning. That's the reproductive cycle of the coral in the nursery and then scoop up billions and billions of these larvae and put them out on the reef. The time to do that is that since you ask is when corals naturally reproduce in the environment. So we don't want to disrupt their cycles. So if we, if they reproduce in the nursery, then those larvae will be put out on the reef at the time, the natural time of the year when those larvae would be out. And that depends on the species. To answer your question on that, the larvae are produced by our Hawaii species at different times. We know the dates. We almost know the dates to within a few days. Um, uh, between May and September of every year. And it depends on the species. Some are early season, some are mid-season, some are late season. Well, thank you for joining us today. Where can our listeners go to learn more about your work? We are about to launch the new Akoako website, AK. OAKOA.org. Uh, that's one for looking at what's going on in Hawaii. And then I direct the Allen Coral Atlas. That's one word, A L L E N Coral Atlas.org. That's the global coral reef program that I direct as well. And how about Asner Labs with the School of Ocean Futures? Yeah, uh, I would highly recommend people take a look at um, go to our center lab, our center website. It's uh, GD as in Delta CS, gdcs.asu.edu. That's the center. And from there, you can get to our School of Vision Futures. You can see all of our faculty and you can find Asner Lab from that because my lab is one of the labs of the center. Okay, thank you. And thank you to our listeners. We welcome your questions and feedback. You can learn more about the Climate Hour at climatehour.net. That's climatehour.net. This is the Climate Hour. I'm your host, Bob Grove.